0: This is Kendall Linske. You're listening to Your Morning Coffee Podcast with Jay Gilbert and Mike Etchart. Weekly music news for the new music business.
1: From Billboard, what will the future of streaming royalties look like?
2: Tidal and UMG want to find out. From Mark Terry at Beat Bread, I spent two decades running major labels. Here's why I left it behind. And from Variety, Spotify hits 205 million
1: paid subscribers, topping user growth targets for Q4 with record total quarterly gain. Well, Jay, we have so much to talk about today. Yes, we <laughs> so do. So much to talk about that. we spent the entire day yesterday together and we're going to share some of that stuff. And let me just say that we are happy that everyone is here because Jay and I are pushing the big button, the big red button that sits on our desk right about now.
0: Stand by for transmission.
3: This is
4: London Coffee. Wake up! The
0: revolution is at hand! Your morning coffee is on the, on the air. On the air. On
1: the air. On 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 the air.
0: Wishing we were something more than friends that kiss When you say it like that, hold me like this I'm wishing we were something more than friends that kiss
2: What a what a cool intro. That was Kendall Innskeep. Her song, Friends That Kiss, uh, dropped this
1: last Friday. Yes, indeed. And Jay, this is where I'm going to give you a chance to insert your favorite euphemism about hooky songs.
2: <laughs> okay. It's got more hooks
1: than a tackle box. Thank you very much. It's a great song. It's a great tune. Oh my God. Yeah. That just feels hit. Like It feels yeah. like a hit. It feels really good. So thank you, Kendall. We appreciate that. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Jay, what a fun day we had yesterday. Yeah. So
2: nice to see you this morning. Yeah. We uh,
1: we were busy, busy guys. Yeah, yesterday. we had
2: a fun time. Um, we went to a really cool event at the Grammy Museum. Uh, Merk Mercuriatus from Hypnosis Songs Fund uh, hosted this really cool event there with uh, Nile Rodgers and with The Dream. And you should be aware of these guys, but they're, you know, uh, like Nile, you know, he's he was in chic, you know, and he's written songs for Diana Ross and David Bowie, Madonna, Duran Duran, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And the dream, he's written for Beyonce, Rihanna, Mariah Carey, Justin Bieber. And I would love to get your take on it. I thought it was like an inspirational TED talk. It really was. And,
1: uh, to kind of frame it, so there were a lot of students. This this was not a very large, that little venue they have there at the Grammy Museum is not terribly large. Most of the people there were students. I think that was part of what they call Grammy U, which is the, the umbrella with which you can become a member of the Grammy organization as a, as a full-time student if you're learning about the business. So there's a lot of students there, super enthusiastic, and it's always so fun to hear people talk about the process. When, when I was in... Uh, I think I was a senior in high school, and my parents bought me a uh, a one-day thing for UCLA at their, their College of Extension. They had a thing on songwriting, and I remember going to that. Barry White was there. Henry Mancini oh, wow. was there. And it was <clears throat> like, and in, 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 I, I could see the students were having that same experience that I had way back in the last century, where, you know, you, it's, you pull the curtain apart, and you kind of hear about the process, and you hear about the work. Yeah. And how they do it, and it's so fascinating because you remember when you're that age, you know they're just they're unobtainable, right? You know they are people that that and that process is so foreign, and it humanizes the process. It really yeah. does.
2: And to hear their stories, and it was just really there fantastic. was a common theme too, and that is that um, the harder I work, the luckier I get. Um, I mm-hmm. heard that from everybody on that stage that. The reason they're successful is they hammer it every single day. They work hard, yes. and they're open to criticism. And all of them said that one of the things that helped them succeed was failing.
1: Yes, absolutely. And that's such an important message for everybody to remember, <laughs> uh, is there there is no success without failure. And uh, it, 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 every time that I fail at something... <laughs> I'm kicking myself and saying, why am I failing? You know, but it, it often leads to better things. Yeah. And that was really one of the messages. And then Merck talked a lot, too, about sort of apathy, the apathy of success and how it's really hard to kind of, you know, once you've had that success to
2: keep that solid work ethic. Yeah. yeah boy, it's yeah. great. Really fun yeah, stuff. Yeah, super great.
1: But that was part one of our day.
2: Yeah. On the way back, um, you and I stopped off. uh there in Hollywood and had coffee with uh, Garrett Levin, who's the CEO of DEMA, you know, sort of the uh, trade group for you know DSPs like uh, you know Spotify, Apple Music, um, and we always have good conversations uh, with Garrett, and uh, this was no different. So special shout out to our friend Garrett Levin from DEMA, um, always a pleasure. Yeah, absolutely,
1: and it was fun to just chat with him too about this sort of the the you know he's he's based out of DC. Yeah. And, you know, the difference of of that kind of culture in that town and versus as we were sitting in West Hollywood at, at the former Riot House, Hyatt House um, yeah. Hotel and the differences of those things or the similarities yeah. as well, which was really a fun conversation. Great guy. The first time I'd met him. Yeah, I know you've you've hung with him. quite yeah, a bit. Yeah, I met but,
2: him uh, in person him. for the first time at the Music Biz uh, Conference in uh, in Nashville and we sat down for lunch and uh, he's just a passionate music guy and just a, a, a real cool cat. Um I I was turned on to a cool music video this morning from my friend Matt. Thank you Matt. Um the artist is Ren, R E N, and this new track, this new video is called Hi Ren. And if you haven't heard of Ren, I hadn't. Uh Ren is a super talented singer-songwriter musician from Brighton, England. Um he's had these ongoing battles with, you know, chronic health problems, you know, since he was young. And Hi Ren is his his latest uh, single, and I sent you over the video. I'd I'd love to hear what you thought. The first time I saw it, it was just so unexpected because it starts off and it looks like he might be playing classical guitar, you know, with nylon strings, and then there's some falsetto singing, and you're like, "Where is this going?" And then he breaks into this almost like an Eminem type uh, rap where he's Mm -hmm. talking to himself, you know, his uh, alter ego. And um, I had subtitles on a video that I watched, and it was just stunning and beautiful and heartbreaking, and it was one of the most incredible things I'd seen. He he reminded me sonically and musically of Jeff
1: Buckley a little bit. Um, And, yeah, it's a super powerful video and super powerful performance and uh, really, just unique. You know what else can you yeah. say? It's super unique. Uh, we'll put a link to it in the yeah, show yeah. Check notes. it out.
2: Um, um, I'd love yeah. to hear what you uh, you think. Um, before we jump into this week's stories, I want to address a couple of stories from last week. Um, we got a, you know. We get a lot of email. Um, <laughs> our friend Bruce Houghton reached out to us about the story from the L.A. Times. Everyone hates Ticketmaster. Is everyone wrong? Um, and if you don't know Bruce, besides, you know, publishing Hypebot, he's also the president of skyline artist agency and has been for over 30 years. So he knows that touring world, uh, better than most. He also advises, uh, the company bands in town, which is one of our sponsors. Anyway, I had a chance to talk with Bruce, uh, about his opinion, uh, about that story in the LA times last week. And, uh, let's let that roll. Bruce, thanks so much for joining us this week. We uh, were talking about that article last week from the LA Times. Everyone hates Ticketmaster. Is everyone wrong? And you had some thoughts, and you have a lot of experience in this area. Tell us about that.
3: Yeah, I'm, I'm putting on my booking agent hat here. You know, I've owned Skyline Artists for. 30 years and we do a couple thousand days a year so I'm sort of coming from that perspective on this one um and and I do think it's it's great that your morning coffee and left sit's in the LA Times and everybody is trying to show that there's more than one side of this that you know uh given given their market dominance live Nation ticketmaster are always going to be under the microscope and always you know going to be the one that uh gets the most criticism but the truth is that most ticketing companies, and promoters and many venues uh benefit from these ticketing fees uh, and charge similar high ticketing fees the the place where I wanted to sort of chime in was that I want to make sure that you and and the listeners understand that 99 percent of all artists never see a penny of those fees um as you know Clyde Lawrence from the band Lawrence said that most artists don't even know um that what those fees are until the tickets go on sale so as he said in the senate hearing they ask, but the answers are somewhat you know vague or or non-existent so so that's the big takeaway take for me and 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 that i want to make sure that we we don't lose sight of and that is that unless you're an arena level artist and not even all of them but but most of them or many of them you're not seeing a penny of the of this money and it's going to ticket master to the venue to the promoter but almost never to the artist
1: yeah. So great to hear. One of the great things about covering this story has been all the different perspectives that we've just, you know, because we don't come from that touring world. And um, we, I, I certainly appreciate the different perspectives because yeah. there's just so much I don't know
2: and uh, really appreciate Bruce you know, coming on and doing that. Yeah. And I asked him if he would do it again. And he said, yes. So as we get into these issues with touring, you know, um, we've seen artists on the road. We understand some of that, but to book these tours for 30 years, there are things that you know uh, and can share. So we, we really appreciate that Bruce. And then there was this other story um, about cassettes and Steve Knopper, wrote it and i've mentioned before that steve's written one of my favorite books on the music industry ever it's called appetite for self-destruction uh the spectacular crash of the record business in the digital age i think it first came out in like 2009 and he's done a another version which was updated a while back anyway it's just such a great book and you and i were at the table in some of those meetings that he talks about in the book Mm -hmm. so i highly recommend it but Uh, Steve wrote this story, um, last week in billboard and the headline was cassettes are making a comeback, but can production keep up? And you and I talked about the luminate report and that over 400,000 cassettes were sold last year. So I wanted to, you know, find out, is this like vinyl? Is it, is it a comeback? You know, what's going on with cassettes? So, um, I had a conversation with Steve and let's, let's hear that now. Thanks for joining me, Steve. According to Luminate Data, 2022 cassette sales in the U.S. were up nearly 30% year over year. Are cassettes really making a comeback?
0: I think a small one. Yeah, I think it's definitely fair to say. I mean, I, it's still a niche item. I mean, 440000 is not going to, you know, make you make the music industry ditch its entire streaming business plan, you know. But um, but yeah, I think in a small way, it's becoming sort of this niche item. It's a collectible um, you know, the, I think the comparison that I tried to explore when I was doing the interviews for the story is, are we seeing something like the vinyl resurgence, you know, in the early 2000s? And I'm kind of getting the sense of no, um, you know, the answer to that is no, it's still very small and limited. Um, sorry about that. But uh, <laughs> but um, let me start that over. It's, it's still very small and limited. Um, but it's, it's, I think that people see cassettes and to an extent vinyl and other physical ways of buying music kind of as merch right now, you know, not so much because it is still difficult to find a player. My sense is there are players available. There are people making walk bands again and so forth, but I think people just like the physical feel of it. And now we're in a moment when vinyl is, is difficult to procure. I mean, if you're Taylor Swift, you have all the right connections, but if you're a smaller indie artist, it takes forever to get vinyl right now because of the supply chain issues from the pandemic. So you go, well, what else can my fans get that's physical, where they can actually feel something, they can have a piece of me, and that's cassettes. And cassettes feel cool, and you can do artistic stuff with cassettes, you know, you, the, the J card is what it's called, where, that they put in a little plastic shell, and you can make lots of pages in that, and do artwork, and all kinds of different stuff. And so... You know, there are big artists, Megan Thee Stallion, Taylor Swift, who are doing lots of cassettes, but I think the industry is still, that that sector is still kind of revolving around smaller indie artists, and there are many of them who are servicing their fans with, you know, runs of 30 or 40 or 50 or 100 or 500, and I think that's where we're seeing the numbers.
1: And I still kind of pinch myself when we're talking about cassettes in the year 2023, you yeah. know, it's uh, and it was, you f- You know, depending on how old you are, you forget how how impactful cassettes were. Oh, yeah. Uh, just as a musician, you know, you, if you had a four track cassette player or if mm-hmm. you had because of the portability in the
2: car and then when the Walkman came out, the you know, Walkman changed ca- everything. Ev- absolutely. I could absolutely. ride my bike and listen to music that which sounds so common today, but. Back then, it was life changing almost. It, it was, was, yeah. And I spent hours doing, you know, workout
1: tapes when I would go running. You know, to I just, and it was, you know, cassettes were it, man. The, that's, that was the, the original was the playlist. Music. Yes, right. Yes, it was a mixtape.
2: If you've ever seen the movie High Fidelity. Um, <laughs> what a great yeah, great it's so good. But yeah, cassettes were were such a big deal. Anyway, thanks to Steve for for popping on, and and speaking of conversations, we've been talking uh, a lot about Web three and what it means, and you know all of that. No one really knows that area, as far as I'm concerned, better than Vicky Um uh, mm-hmm. She's the founder and CEO of Cross Border Works, and we've spoken to her on this podcast and. Um, she's just, well, she's an expert on the, on music and technology. And I had a chance to talk with her last week. She's got a few predictions for, uh, web three and the music business this year. Let's hear what she had to say. Vicki, thanks so much for joining me today. I really enjoy our chats. I, I think that you're one of those people that kind of can see a little bit into the future, a little bit more than most. So I wanted to ask you, Going into twenty twenty three, here we are at the beginning of the year. Do you have any predictions on where kind of music and technology or web three are headed?
5: I do. And um happy new year. I am um I, I'm still really bullish about web three despite the crypto craziness and things kind of slowing down and settling, because I think we're in a phase right now where we're building infrastructure and companies are, you know, where companies are actually building real businesses. It seems like the last couple of years have been a lot of proof of concepts and ideas that have come to light. and um, And I think that one of my predictions in general for music is that I think in the next year or probably year and a half, two years, is we will start to see web3 companies that are really poised to do something with music and the reason that i i always see this separation is that whenever there's a new technology there are oftentimes companies that are like moths to a flame and they they see music and they're like wow you know we want to do something with music because we get artists in our platform and everybody's going to come and do platform adoption and then they discover this of course, terrifying thing called music rights, and that you're actually using people's intellectual property and their personality rights. And that immediately separates the the, the companies into one of two buckets. Do they have an appetite and the, the wherewithal to do this and the will to do it right? Or are they going to be either asking for forgiveness or just doing other things besides music? So I think that in general, that's one of the trends is I think we're going to start to see specific things that are able to accommodate, you know, NFTs with many different shareholders and smart contracts and rights holders and wallets that are interchangeable across different platforms and interoperable. Um, but another big trend that I think is going that we're going to start to see is around NFTs that are going to evolve for music into what I would call artist-centric token-based communities. And this is probably another very big mouthful for fan clubs and um, but these are fan clubs that I think are going to be highly interactive that are going to have collectibility that are going to have value for, users and fans as long as they're engaged, but they might, if they decide, yeah, I'm not really into that band anymore, or I just don't really care, they can sell their token or trade it or give it to somebody else. And um, and this is particularly exciting for me because over the last probably 15 years, we have had a ton of companies that have tried to do Artist to fan, and they've tried to do fan clubs or you know monetizing communities. And one of the main reasons they have all failed is that they require the artist to do too much. And artists like everybody thinks like, oh, we want to release your demos and your unfinished songs. Well, guess what? Artists don't want to release demos and unfinished songs they're unfinished and they want to release songs that they've, that they've nurtured and tweaked and they've got them perfect. And, um, and so I think that um, we've had the opportunity many times, but we haven't really had the right, the right technology and the right mechanism to really be able to pull, pull fans together and not only give them music or maybe video or the chance to co-create with the artists but to be a part of a limited community that is probably kind of scarce you know there's not in, in a limit you know a limitless number of slots and they can talk amongst each other they can engage with um, the artist's music they can collect and they can be part of a tribe and music is just inherently tribal
1: and boy, I sure appreciate having expertise in that world because that is just you know, all of that future looking stuff uh yeah. can be so overwhelming, yeah. you know, and and I appreciate the expertise. Let's just leave it. I do that. too. I look forward to checking in with her in the future. And
2: and I also appreciate that it's not a lot of hype. She's so, you know, even handed with this uh new business. Um, and uh, I, she's like my go to person. And hopefully we can get her back on to talk about things as the year progresses. And then finally, before we jump into the stories, I know there's a lot of these little audio clips uh, this week, but I just wanted one last one. And that is uh, Jennifer Freed, who's the founder and CEO of uh, Travana Tracks. Really, their focus is simplifying, you know, the over complicated world of sync licenses, getting them negotiated, delivered and paid. And we talk about sync licensing a lot. So um, here's a, a quick chat I had with uh, Jennifer Freed. Jennifer, thank you so much. Well, for your patience and for joining me today. Um, we had a little ghost in the machine. <laughs> Tell me a little bit. You're the founder and CEO of Travana Tracks. Tell us about Travana Tracks.
4: Great. Well, thanks for having me on. Jay, um, I our origin story for Travana Tracks comes deeply rooted in my other company that I'm a founder of, Travana Post. So we have done post production accounting for over 800 feature films, and through that process, we have seen, if you can imagine, dozens, hundreds of different ways that um, the management of music supervision has. Uh, been processed which has been rather chaotic and somewhat the wild wild west unlike all the other technologies that have happened in filmmaking with scheduling budgeting camera visual effects music supervision has no tools so everybody has to start from square one they have to reinvent the wheel every time and there's just was no collaborative space where everybody could see the options that were being considered for each project, how the rights holder uh, information was being researched, how you were getting your split information, how you were negotiating, how you were doing your communication with licensors, copy pasting into these crazy emails or word documents over and over repetitive information that was exhausting and not really where those creative juices should be focused.
1: Yeah. And of course, sync licensing is so important to, to the industry. And I remember, you know, when I was at Warner's, those guys were over in a whole different building, you know, when I was at Warner Brothers Records. And I knew they were over there, but nobody really paid attention. And yet now it's just such an important part of, for breaking artists. And I remember when that, seeing that kind of, you know, that on my time in the business, that... I remember seeing the importance of sync licensing and all of that stuff rise to the level of, of you know when you're talking about breaking artists and all all kinds of things. It yeah. used to be just kind of nice revenue coming in the side, but then it became a very strategic thing to do. And I know when you had the digital label, that was a big part of yeah. your digital label at Universal, um, making you know looping in everyone in that department as yeah. well.
2: Yeah, it, it used uh, to be uncool. Remember, you know Neil Young railing against it and. Yep for a while there, it was not hip and trendy to have your songs in film and TV. And that really flipped. And one of the things that really pushed it forward was, uh, before there was Apple music, there was iTunes and iTunes had these great commercials where they were breaking artists like Feist and some of those where their commercials were really cool, but they had this really cool music along with it. And I remember when sting did a Jaguar commercial and it blew up and, and, When I was at Universal, I remember there was a time where, you know, certain artists that they were careful not to expose too much, if they had some big event coming, you know, they would, um, you know, do a campaign for music syncs. And today, Mm -hmm. of course, it's, you know, there's games and products and, you know, all sorts of ways that uh, sync can be, you know, exploited in the best possible way other than film and TV. So, um, uh, we, we appreciate her coming on. Um, you, you and I, when we were talking with Garrett, you had mentioned, a, a story that you read in the verge, one of our favorite sources. Um, and I thought it was really fascinating and I went back and read it this morning. Um, <laughs> tell us about that story. <laughs>
1: Well, you know, there's been so many layoffs in the tech sector, and of course, you know, we we include companies like Spotify, et cetera, in in the tech sector. Uh, about these layoffs, and you know, I, I well, one of the things we mentioned <laughs> with Garrett was that you know you forget because I, we all have Apple Plus, the Apple News Plus, I should say. I read so many things and I forget where they were from, so they get kind of fed to me. But I went swung back around and it was from The Verge. But yeah, yeah talking about all of the tech layoffs in the in the in the uh, in the economy right now and how it's, it's sort of a me too thing. And, uh, this article in The Verge starts off by saying, you know, if it could have been the same PR person that wrote all of these, all of these statements, <laughs> really they've good. got the, what the they've got the tech companies what they're saying about their layoffs. They got Meta, they got Google, they got Microsoft, Salesforce, Amazon, Amazon, you know, Spotify. All these people, and they're almost saying the same thing. And this article points out, it says, let's be real, none of these companies are teetering on the edge of bankruptcy. In fact, they were recently minting money. That money did not evaporate, and as any person who's been through job cuts can tell you, it's generally not about performance either. So this article really goes to kind of break it down on what the hell is going on and why is it happening now. And um, you know, they talk some some things I was not familiar with. They were saying in here, software companies like Microsoft should have about five hundred thousand dollars in revenue per employee or at least a minimum of $300,000, which is fascinating. I've never read that before. Yeah, me neither. Um, yeah, but then then they go on to say, but the theory behind layoffs is that uh, they save the company money, even though there's an initial expenditure of like millions or billions when you talk about severance. And then the idea is that with fewer salaries, the company's costs are lower on an ongoing basis. But they talked to some experts, and they were saying, in fact, this one expert they talked to, Jeffrey Pfeiffer, who's a professor over at Stanford Graduate School of Business, they asked him about the similarities in company statements. And his answer was very succinct. succinct. It's, he said, The tech companies are copying each other. And he said, I think Peter Drucker, who, if you may know, is kind of the father of management thinking, was quoted as saying something to the effect of thinking is hard work, which is why most managers don't do it. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, layoffs don't cut costs. He says. In fact, there's a l- empirical evidence that layoffs help. Imp- uh, that there is a little empirical evidence that layoffs help improve profitability, and a lot of evidence that says maybe they actually hurt profitability. And so, you know, it's not sometimes they don't have a cost problem, they have a revenue problem and cutting employees will not increase revenue. So there's a lot of interesting things that yeah. in fact I'll put a link to this yeah. in the in the
2: uh, in the thing as well. So Super interesting. You know, I'd never read anything like this before and I really learned a lot and when you look at the statements by all of these companies, they really do look like they were written by the the same person. And somebody had mentioned to me that these layoffs sometimes are largely theater and it's a PR Mm -hmm. move. But the problem with that is you're messing with people's lives. And so, and I'm not accusing all of these people of, you know, like needless layoffs, but some of them, uh, it appears certainly are. No, and we you know we've talked a lot about mental health, and boy, and that's <clears throat> and it. Also
1: mentions that certainly people get laid off. It's it's a horrific thing to go through, but it also affects the people that are still there at the company. Yeah. and you know what does that do for your motivation? And of course, we've all seen the same thing, which is congratulations, you kept your job. Yeah. Oh, and by the way, you actually have two jobs. Yeah. Now. You know, and the stress and 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 pressure that
2: puts on the people, especially in the, the music companies. business, um, we we've yes. seen that happen where the people who are left behind that still have their jobs. They're they're doing the jobs of two or three people. But fascinating yes. uh, article. Thanks for sending that over. Um and there'll be a link. Thank you. And we'll we'll jump into the stories uh this week. Um but before we do we always uh read Glenn People's uh, weekly email called the Ledger. We do. And uh let let's talk about that a little bit because there were some uh fascinating stats in there this week and what I love about Glenn and we've talked about this is that He just doesn't, uh, you know, take the news as, uh, you know, as the gospel. He does the research and he's kind of dispelling a couple of myths uh, this week in the ledger. Yeah, absolutely. So it starts with saying Spotify finished 2022 with more
1: than 100 million tracks in its catalog, according to the company's annual report filed uh, back on February 2nd. That's 18 million more than the 82 million tracks streaming service, the than the 82 million tracks the streaming service had the year prior, which averages to about 49,000 new songs per day.
2: Ah, so by most measures, 49,000 tracks a day is a huge amount of music, you know, three minutes or so per song. It would take about three and a half months to listen to a single single day's worth of new music start to finish. But 49,000 is only half the number that's been cited in recent months. You know, Universal Music Group chairman uh, Lucian Grange said in in September that 100,000 tracks were being added to music platforms every day. Earlier that month, uh, former Warner Music Group CEO Stephen Cooper said roughly 100,000 tracks were uploaded every day to SoundCloud, Spotify, Apple, and other platforms on any day of the week. And if you caught that last line, it was to SoundCloud, Spotify, Apple, and other platforms. Sure. So
1: Glenn goes on to say there certainly could be 100,000 new tracks uploaded daily in aggregate, There's more music on the internet than Spotify adds to its catalog. SoundCloud, for example, adds tracks at a faster rate than other platforms because it licenses music from record labels and distributors while also accepting direct uploads from independent musicians. So the service currently boasts 40 million artists on the... Let me read that again. The service currently boasts 40 million artists on the platform. Were unlikely to be found elsewhere. When I wrote, when Glenn wrote about the size of music catalogs back in April of last year, SoundCloud had added 50 million tracks in about 10, 12 months, or about 137,000 tracks per day. It appears to have largely maintained that growth rate from February of last year through January of this year. SoundCloud added 45 million tracks, an average of 123,000 per day according to numbers found in the company's press
2: release. Yeah, that's the difference. You just, you just nailed it, and well, Glenn nailed it, is that the barrier to entry is so low on SoundCloud You know that let's say Spotify, for example, has 100 million tracks. Well, they have well over 300 million on SoundCloud. So when you put all of that together, and then the last thing I'll just kind of add to this is that a track doesn't mean a song. Um, mm-hmm. it, it means an ISRC, which is a unique identifier. So you know, maybe Justin Bieber's last single might have you know 10 different versions of it, 10 different ISRCs. So those are you know counted within this. But uh, it's still uh, a lot of music. Uh, a lot it of certainly is. A lot of noise and a lot of great music and tough to rise above. But uh, thank you, Glenn, for setting the record straight uh, with some of those numbers. Yes,
1: indeed. It's always, uh, we can always count on Glenn to give us food for thought. Yeah, And, and he is, he's like, uh, I'm kind of watching my dog actually in the yard right now digging in the dirt. And it's like, Glenn is like, you know, he's just, he, he wants to get to the bottom of it, which yeah. is so fun to, to have him as a resource because yeah. he, you, he will go out there and doggedly, no pun intended, yeah. get to the bottom of it. So, yeah. Uh, so I, I say we jump in
2: some of the stories, Jay, what do you think? Um, let's do it, but oh, we should probably thank our sponsors, uh, because without them, we wouldn't be jumping into these stories. That is correct. And thank you for correcting me, Jay, the Your Morning Coffee
1: podcast, which Jay and I do every week is brought to you by our friends at Banzoogle. We want to take this time to congratulate Banzoogle members for surpassing $100 million in commission-free sales of music, merch, and tickets through their websites. Banzoogle makes it easy to build a stunning website and online store for your music in just minutes. All the features you need are already built in, including dozens of fully customizable templates, tools to sell music, merch, and tickets commission-free, mailing list tools to grow your fan list and send newsletters, integrations with Bandcamp, SoundCloud, YouTube, Bands in Town, and more so you can easily add content from your other online profiles, live support from their musician-friendly team seven days a week, Plan started just $8.29 a month, which includes hosting and your own free custom domain name. Your Morning Coffee podcast listeners, listeners can jump over to Banzoogle.com to try it free for 30 days and use the promo code MORNINGCOFFEE, all one word, to get
2: 15% off the first year of any subscription. That's Banzoogle.com promo code MORNINGCOFFEE. Yes, sir. We're also brought to you by HypeBot. Since 2004, HypeBot has chronicled the new music business and trends and technologies that are changing how music is discovered, Consumed, marketed, and monetized. It's edited daily by founder Bruce Houghton, who we just talked about, with help from Alana Bonilla. Hypot and sister blog Music Think Tank are published by Live Music Discovery and marketing platform Bands in Town.
1: Yes, indeed. Bands in town, over 74 million live music fans trust Bands in Town to get personalized concert alerts, recommendations, and messages from their favorite artists. It's the number one artist service platform connecting over 560,000 artists with their super fans. Managers, labels, agencies, and artists access their own dashboard to manage and
2: promote their tour dates. Across all platforms. That's right. And finally, Music Business Association. For more than six decades, the Music Biz Conference has been the point of origin for inspiration, collaboration in the music business. Join us in Nashville, May 15th through the 18th. Yes, indeed. By the way, and the guy that I
1: get to do this every week with, Jay Gilbert, in case you don't know Jay and... But really, everybody knows Jay. But let me just review his stellar experiences. Oh he is a in- music industry consultant. He's the curator of the fabulous weekly Your Morning Coffee newsletter and a former executive with Universal, Sony, Warner Music Groups, and Fox Home Entertainment. And a man who, when he orders a cheeseburger, it's just meat and cheese. <laughs> Nothing else, baby.
2: Nothing else. Well, this week, uh, since you were buying lunch, I had tots. And that was... Uh... <laughs> Pretty darn cool. Uh, this guy sitting over uh, across from me is uh, Mike Etchart, longtime host of Sound and Vision Radio, formerly of SST Records, Warner Music Group, Capital EMI, and Universal Music Groups. We have so much to talk about uh, today. We should probably jump into the first story.
1: Yes, indeed. From Billboard, what will the future of streaming royalties
2: look like? couple of companies
1: you might have heard of title and UMG want to
2: find out Yeah. So, written by yeah. Dan Rice thank you Dan this is a, a really interesting and topical uh, piece because there's been a lot of talk lately about changing the way that the, the performers the songwriters just how people are paid uh, with streaming and we've talked about the pro rata model which is what we have mostly uh, today um, where you're paid, your, your rights holder, typically your label is paid on uh, market share. And then there's the fan powered, you know, or user centric. And we've talked a little bit about that, where, you know, if I listen to Ren all month, then he gets my, my money or his rights holder if he's through a label or something like that. Right.
1: But you'll, you'll recall when Lucian Grange sent out that uh, letter to his employees, in quotation marks. <laughs> there's <laughs> also a letter to sort of all of us he kind of imp, uh, mentioned this kind of concept that they were going to maybe kind of try to really figure out a better system and that really is uh when you th- when you just kind of look at it globally boy that's a that's a heavy lift to r- try kind of figure out how to do
2: this better yeah and yeah re, you know it's, it here, really so is we go. yeah and and it wasn't really clear what Lucian Grange meant in that letter there's you know, we'll, we'll get into a little bit deeper in this article, but, you know, it became a little clearer, um, but there isn't much clarity with what it will mean, you know. Uh, but UMG is hoping to find out. To that end, Universal's announced this partnership with Tidal to, quote unquote, research how by harnessing fan engagement, digital music services and platforms can generate greater commercial value for every type of artist. And I think we all want that.
1: Yeah, exactly. And then uh, Michael Nash, who's the executive VP and chief digital officer at UMG, and who I used to work for, actually, when I, when I was in the interactive business. <laughs> wow. Oh, it's funny when you bump into these people. Said, uh, basically, as the digital landscape continues to evolve, it becomes increasingly clear that music streaming's economic model needs innovation to ensure a vibrant and sustainable future. Title's embrace of this transformational opportunity is especially exciting because the music ecosystem can work better for every type of artist and fan, but only through a dedicated, thoughtful collaboration built on deeply held, shared principles about the value of artistry and the importance of the artist-fan relationship. This strategic initiative... We'll explore how to enhance and advance the model in keeping with our collective objectives. Yeah. Wow. Is, it, it sounds like a dream.
2: I mean, it we, does sound like a dream. We, we all want that. Um, but, but how do you go about that? You'll, you'll remember in, in November of 2021, Tidal announced a three-tier membership structure, you know, mm-hmm. and th- they stepped really into the user-centric uh, that I just described, you know, that royalty model for the premium tier. Um, So that pays rights holders uh, based on the streaming activity of each individual user. Um, And it's interesting because I, I see these numbers um, being bounced around about, you know, how will this affect, you know, indie artists, how will it affect, you know, sort of the, the superstar artists. And I think what's great that Dan digs into are some of the studies surrounding this and, some of them it doesn't show much of a difference but one study found that you know for most artists over 99% of artists the, the switch would e- equate to less than a 5% bump in royalties right um and that that could even be offset by administrative costs um but there's there's there are other numbers involved with this
1: yeah it yeah it's, it's, you know, the more I dig, the, the more I read and the more I dig into it, the more kind of my head spins because, you know, when you're talking about, okay, what if we've switched to this, which I think is an inherently a a more fair thing. And, and this is saying, well, yeah, but you're not talking about a, a lot, a a different change in, in basically what a, a given artist would, would receive an in income. <clears throat> yeah. But to me, it's worth, it's still worth the effort because I think personally, I think it's a little bit more inherently fair. um. But Title yeah. for their point, uh, con- effectively conceded the point and said they are stepping away from the user-centric model they were pursuing in order to take a step back and join in this new research project with UMG. We are setting aside our current fan-centered centri- royalty- royalties investigation to focus on this opportunity for more impact. Titles Jesse... Nora Gusker said in a statement, this partnership will enable us to rethink how we can sustainably improve royalties distribution for the breadth of our artists on our platform. And yeah, I, I kind of applaud the notion of, I do kind too. of stepping back and maybe, and maybe really looking at it with fresh eyes yeah. and maybe kind of seeing, well, what, what,
2: what really would make sense? Yeah. And you know, look, Universal's the, the largest uh, of the majors and, um, to have all of that data and to use title, um, to do this, I think is really great, but that brings us to the original question, you know, what will this look like? Um, mm-hmm. and Dan points out in this piece, the, the answer could be varied and it could be different for each streaming service. There've been some conversations in some sectors of the industry about weighting music streams higher, um, uh, you know, than background sounds, for example, um, or heavily weighting intentional listening, you know, searching for and clicking on a song or artist, you know, uh, weighting those more than, let's say, background listening, you know, a playlist or an uh, algorithmically chosen next song. There are already different models around ad-supported versus paid subscription payouts, and there's a conversation to be had about how fan engagement should or could influence where the money is directed. What UMG and Tidal are trying to say with this announcement is let's go try some things and see what works. And, you know, let's let everyone else know what we're doing so that maybe we can find an innovative answer to, and I think that's the bottom line. And that makes a whole lot of sense. Yeah,
1: absolutely. And I like that. They're kind of calling it, you know, it's, they're sort of examining different and different ideas. And of course the notion that maybe it's different on different platforms is also something that's, that's worth considering, um, and but I, you know, and, and you, you you and I were talking about this just in general with Garrett yesterday, and you know, but between ourselves, we've talked about this too, and it's like, you know, is 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 a track that that is just kind of a, a sonic thing, is that a, a truly a song? Is that is that the same thing
2: as a, as a Beyonce single? Right, uh, and who's to say uh, if it's rain yeah. sounds and somebody thinks it's their art? Who am I to say that? You know, that's not worth as much, but there is that argument from people saying, well, you know, when you uh, let's say, you know, you go to a concert, you know, those if you're a big uh, artist with a lot of demand, those tickets are expensive. If you're a new developing artist, they're relatively inexpensive. And could that be part of streaming? I just don't think so. I just think it's there's too many tracks. There's too much, uh, you know, data. And I don't know. I think that's a slippery slope. (laughs)
1: <laughs> it's, the whole thing it can be a slippery slope but <laughs> you know it, its I think it's its going to be hard work and I applaud them at least for, for stepping into the void and saying well yeah. let's let's try to do some of this hard work and figure it out I, I, I can't imagine what they're going to come up with it's going to be fascinating yeah. to see what results are and how they're going to kind of quantify the things that they determine might be a, an avenue of pursuing yeah. at least some smart yeah.
2: people are looking at it right
1: Yeah, it'd be
2: fun to be a fly on the wall of those conversations. Oh, yeah. And speaking of smart people looking at things, our our next piece is from Mark Terry uh, from Beat Bread. And the headline is, I spent two decades running major labels. Here's why I left it behind. And if you haven't looked into BeatBread, it's, it's actually pretty cool. It allows, you know, any artist, but it's probably better for indie artists that maybe don't have a label behind them financing things that if they have, you know, some history of making revenue, um, they can get money, um, from BeatBread to finance, you know, say a new album tour, whatever, um, but uh, it, it's a pretty cool platform and there are a lot of distributors that are using it now. I mean I think uh, I'd read that you know like symphonics using them and, and some other folks it's pretty cool
1: yeah it's really cool and it's um, a very clever um, uh, a, not an application but a clever platform uh, platform right to come into this space because as you and I were talking before we hit record you know for for a lot of established bands, they do kind of use major labels or they can use them as as a funding source. And then and then, you know, they kind of continue to go back to that funding source over time. And um, and if you're not on a major label, you don't have that option. This kind of fills that gap. So very interesting yeah. company just to, be, to start with. Yeah. Um, but the 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 writer of this uh, was talking about. He said, "If uh, talking about the change, and and this person spent the last three decades within the label system in the UK, and they've had an up close and personal view of the transformation that's taken place. Yeah, and you know, and when you when you start reading about this stuff, and you you kind of think, it, at least for me, it really kind of solidifies how much things have changed over the last two decades. You know, we when we came in." different world than it is today and everything and and the and the how fast things are changing. Yeah. First of all, that's dramatic. And how many options as artists exist out there, different ways of of getting your music out and all that stuff. So I wanted to just kind of say that when I'm thinking when I'm reading this article, I'm thinking about that. Yeah. Um yeah. you know, the 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 but what he's mentioning here is basically how in the in the last few years the interest in being independent has only increased and he says massively and rapidly sit in any conference room of young artists managers and producers you'll hear the message loud and clear artists are less interested in signing restrictive rights deals and even less interested in handing over control of their music to an industry that has become increasingly reactive rather than
2: proactive. Yeah. And he's not wrong. Wow. You know, he's Mark no. Terry has spent, you know, decades at uh, uh, record companies. He was co-president of Columbia uh, in the UK uh, and made them the number one label uh, in the country while he was there, you know, with the likes of Daft Punk and Mark Ronson and Calvin Harris, et cetera. Um, so when he speaks, you know, I, I definitely take that seriously. Um, he's not necessarily bashing majors and we will never do Mm. that either because majors are more than a bank. You'll hear that from people like, well, you know, you can sign with a major label, but they're going to own your masters and they're really more of a bank. Not anymore. Um, the deals for artists are, they've evolved and changed. And we spoke with Ari Herstand, you know, who's, um, he had his new third version of his book out and he, he addresses that as well. How, it's a good time to be uh, an artist uh, speaking with labels because of the way things have evolved. But uh, a label can be so much more than a bank. If you get a label behind you, um, they've got smart, talented people sometimes globally that will wake up every morning looking for ways to market and uh, you know, the not only the music, but help you grow your audience. Um, So, he, he points out in this piece that, you know, legacy major labels, you know, to him, they say, you know, it fits the realities of a bygone era. Labels are no longer the one-stop shop of artist development, distribution, international promotion, and funding that once guarded entry into the music business. And he's not wrong because, you know, with BeatBread, you can get funding. You know, you can do your own targeted online advertising. A lot of labels will hire out Uh, let's say for a publicist or for sync licensing Mm -hmm. or whatever, you can do that. And a lot of artist managers that you and I speak to, they know that and they outsource a lot of these things and they operate more like a label. Right. Mark says labels have also seemingly
1: stepped away from the long haul of artist development, leaving artists and their managers to largely build their business and fan base on their own. Before attracting the attention of a label, unsurprisingly, after a few years of self-development, artists become protective over their rights, fan base, identity and creative control and less open to the influence of a partner who hasn't been there from the start. And then he says, all that's left is the label's checkbook. (laughs) But again, he was saying, you know, that's that's but 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 they are effective when when they get behind an artist or a record. But we've, of course, seen the the change in, in the way things are happening now in terms of a, there's a lot of releases at the same time and sometimes labels kind of sit back and wait for something to happen and then they they attach a lot of funding to that so yeah. it's a it's a challenging time for everybody to kind of navigate through this and figure out what's the best for them right and with so many options for artists and the music business has cleanup. such
2: a, a high failure rate if you're just looking mm-hmm. for ROI. And, you know, um, Mark Terry goes on to say, you know, don't don't get me wrong. Labels are incredibly effective when they really get behind an artist or record. They have experienced resources, deep relationships and are experts at amplifying domestic success into a global phenomenon. So let's not forget that. But here's the thing. And we tell people this all the time, you know. It's that it's like got a ninety three percent failure rate if you just look at ROI in the music industry, right? It's yes. that one out of however many that blows up that funds the developing artists that you're trying to you know get played on the radio or get into playlists. And he said, however, this this isn't the reality for ninety eight percent of artists who signed to a major label in exchange for everything a label could offer artists invariably give up the rights to their work and income only to be caught in a vortex of spiraling debt and creative servitude Ooh, ouch <laughs> but you know he he ends it by saying and
1: this is so true this is a new era of music artists are in the power seat and have the ability to achieve success while retaining complete control over their music and it's not necessarily That's with right. a major so you know it's it's uh, but I think we were having this, you and I were having this discussion yesterday, which is, you know, when we were starting out playing music, the the, the only way that you, we could see at that time as young people was to get signed to a, to a major label. Right. And now the choices are just so broad and, and but... The good news and the bad news is the choices are so broad, and the expectation is you have to not only write great music and be a great performer, but you have Mm -hmm. to now navigate the business side. And social media
2: and all of this stuff. It's, It's crazy. And when you and I were kind of growing up and playing in bands and doing all of that, it was... Yeah, we could we could do some demos at home and things like that. But if you wanted to record a high-quality recording, you had to go in this recording studio, you know, mm-hmm. Ampex, 456, <clears throat> two-inch tape and all of that stuff. Today, with these digital audio workstations, I'm hearing recordings done at home from artists that are world-class. It's a whole yes. different world today, and it's... You know, they're like we talked about with uh, Ryan Dusick, you know, from Maroon 5, their mental health implications with some of this stuff. It's just overwhelming. But, you know, hats off to Mark Terry and Beat Bread for giving artists, you know, uh, another way to fund their projects. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. Great article. Um, and then our last one, Jay, from Variety, Spotify, company you may have heard of. Uh, hits 205 million paid subscribers, topping user growth targets for Q4, with record total quarterly gain. So yeah. wow, that is a pretty. This <laughs> is from Todd Spangler, yeah, over at Variety. Great piece. And, uh, yeah, and uh, man, that's those are some big numbers. Spotify packed on 10 million premium customers in the last three months of 2022 to stand at 205 million topping its previous guidance. The growth of its paid subs up 14% year-over-year was aided by promotional intake and household plans the
2: company hmm. said. Yeah, interesting. Overall, you know, Spotify gained 33 million total monthly active users in the fourth quarter, that's a record high for them. Uh, And they've reached uh, a grand total of 489 million uh, active uh, monthly users. And that's uh, free and paid. And that's up over 20% year over year. So, you know, that's in a kind of a weak economy, you know, um, they, they're, they're up, they're doing well, they're adding, you know, new users. Um, So, you know, kudos to, to them uh, for continuing to innovate, to continue to grow in a tough market. And there's also a lot of competition out there now.
1: Sure. Uh, they say we ended 2022 with strong Q4 performance as nearly all of our key performance indicators surpassed, surpassed guidance, Spotify said in its quarterly shareholder deck. Company said revenue growth, excluding the impact of changes in foreign currency exchange rates, was ahead of expectations. Uh, Their ad-supported revenue in Q4 grew 14% year-over-year to a fairly large number of 444 million euros led by podcasting gains in the mid-30% range. The company's growth margin for the quarter was twenty five percent, 25.3%, slightly above guidance, primarily as a result of lower-than-expected spend on the new podcast content investments as well as broad-based music favorability. And, of course, their, their spending was kind of come under fire this year. Um, in fact, Daniel Eck was saying uh, just last week as well that he kind of You kind of went crazy with spending (laughs) on podcast
2: things over the last year. That's right. That's right. Um, And then there were were layoffs recently, too. I had some of my friends, mm -hmm. unfortunately, um, that were laid off. And I don't know if that has anything to do with that earlier piece from The Verge. You know, I won't speculate. But one of the areas that has been really growing is the uh, Spotify Wrapped campaign. You know, at the end of the year where they give you your Spotify Wrapped. And it's so much fun to you know, look and see what you're listening to. And, you know, if you're an artist, it's so great to kind of see where your fans are. And, you know, um, as a fan, um, I had a couple of artists where I was in the top like 3% of listeners (laughs) for them. And I thought that was pretty cool. Um, So the company said that their wrapped campaign this last year It drew significantly higher engagement than the prior year. More than 150 million users across 111 markets engaged with Spotify Wrapped. That was their eighth annual uh, campaign. So up over 30% year over year. That's pretty impressive. Yeah.
1: And don't forget, uh, back on their third quarter earnings call in October... Uh, Daniel X said Spotify is looking at raising prices on its U.S. subscription plans following increases by Apple Music and YouTube Premium, uh, and that's you know we you and I have talked a lot about that how you know the the video subscription services have no qualms about increasing those prices <laughs> at the drop of a hat, uh, but for some reason the the uh, the music guys don't do that. Not so much. I think it's not much. Not <clears throat> much, and it's such a value you know not that i want prices to rise on anything but you know i i want to see artists get get more money so and songwriters and yeah them, and songwriters absolutely so for that
2: to happen the prices need to rise so that we'll see where that goes and it's worth more time. right i mean we're we're basically yes. at the same prices that we were you know 10 years ago when there was maybe 30 million tracks now there's 100 million tracks and there's audiobooks and there's podcasts and there's you know all this value across a lot of these dsp's and yet the price is still the same. So um, that's interesting that they're, you know that Daniel Eck is talking about those price increases. And I, I think the, the time is now. Well, and gosh, you and I have, have talked about the, the perspective from older guys,
1: which is you know when we both moved out of our parents' houses, I had a Datsun pickup truck that I had like six crates of vinyl in the back. They were heavy, my too. Of music. They were heavy, and they were not well cared for under my direction. <laughs> <laughs> to be honest um, but you know we, we are so spoiled to have essentially the world's catalog of music in our back pockets yeah. and, to, and the, the amount of money that is paid for that lovely luxury is not very much no, and uh, not at all it's wonderful times to be a music fan with, with the technology that exists today so so Jay it's time to wrap up the episode can you believe it man that goes so fast <sighs> it really does it goes does. so fast yeah, it really does. We certainly Jay and I certainly appreciate everyone listening to uh to the podcast and we were at that event yesterday uh, at the Grammy Museum and a couple of listeners came up and mentioned how much they enjoy the show. That was and So cool. we, of course, yeah. were big smiling ear to ear. So we uh, we do thank that. If By the way, if you do enjoy our show, we would certainly appreciate it if you tell one friend. And, of course, big thanks to Music Business Association, BandZooko, HypeBot, Bands in Town, and the, and Bands in Town uh, for for helping us do the show and helping us put it up. And, man, we could not do it without them. So... Uh, On behalf of Jay Gilbert, the 33rd Hardest Working Man in Show Business this week, and myself, way much further down the list. Uh, We appreciate you listening in, and we will see you next time on the Your Morning Coffee podcast.
5: You've been listening to Your Morning Coffee, the weekly music news program for the new music business. Join Jay Gilbert and Mike Etchard next time for the digital music news you need to know.